Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so I want you to listen. This is a guy, actually... It's providential. As I was at home right before dinner, I got on my iPad and went to a blog, and I went on Twitter, and this came up, and I'm like, oh, wow, I've got to show this tonight because this just kind of explains the world in which we live. This is a guy named Tony Jones. I don't know if you know who he is. When I was a youth pastor about 10, 12 years ago, he wrote the Postmodern Youth Ministry, and he was a big youth minister in evangelical circles. But I want you to listen to this. You can't really see him. All he's doing is talking into a screen. So this is about a two-and-a-half-minute clip, but I want you to listen to what he has to say. Blogger, theologian, uh, professor, and author. I've been a huge fan of Dan Savage's It Gets Better project and been happy to share that with uh, my blog readership. And so I'm really excited uh, for the not-all-like-that Christian project. I've been one of those people who has repeatedly tweeted at Dan Savage that not all Christians are like that. And I have, I think, even better news that indeed when I first publicly voiced my support for gays and lesbians, bisexual and transgender persons in the church, I lost some speaking gigs. Um, I had publishers tell me they would never publish my work again. But I've had other publishers warmly embrace me. I've gotten other speaking gigs at other places. And uh, here's what I think is the good news. More and more evangelicals, particularly young ones, are opening up to the idea that are opening up to the idea that gays and lesbians, bisexuals, transgender, intersex persons can have full-fledged citizenship status in our country and can be full participating leadership members in the church. This is a growing movement. Progressive Christianity is growing. This is a growing movement. Progressive Christianity is growing and it is the future of Christianity in America, in North America, in the West, and hopefully all around the globe. So I want to voice my support as yet someone else who says not all Christians are like that when the media points to Tony Perkins and Pat Robertson and the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention and John Piper and Mark Driscoll. We're not all like that. In fact, the future wave of Christianity is people who are open, who are accepting, who see the Bible as a theological document, not a historic document, not a scientific document, not a rule book for living. I'm happy to be a part of NALT. I'm going to voice my support for it here and in coming days and months. I'm glad that John Shore and Dan Savage have put it together. And uh, I look forward to seeing more and more people join this movement. So, I don't know. 
regardless of what issue you talk about, whether it's um, homosexual marriage, whether it's, you know, whether it's fornication, whether it's whatever issue, what's the underlying issue that he says there? There's a growing movement of younger evangelicals who are basically saying, let's just throw out the Bible. And he's using terms like evangelical, Christian, and, and things like that. So over the summer, what I was thinking is part of what I, part of what I want us to do is, is go on this journey together of really trying to understand biblical worldview. Um, part of this has come out of what I was studying in seminary. Part of this is coming out of just my own personal study, um, thinking about where we're going as a church, thinking about what's facing us as a culture. And so what I want us to do is just kind of step back and take a big picture look at the Bible and have that help us in areas of worldview. And so um, how you view the Bible and how you view the world will affect how you do evangelism. It will affect how you do ministry. It will affect how you encourage and disciple your friends, how you give advice, how we relate to the government, how we relate to um, helping the poor. All, all, all areas of life come from a biblical worldview. So we're going to look at some very foundational questions tonight. And so um, the first foundational question that we're going to ask is, and, and kind of, guys, what I'd like to do is let, let's, let me get through the entire presentation and then we'll leave questions for the end. Is that, is that okay, just so we can get through the material? Um, what is the Bible? Let me give you guys the definition from our church. This is our actual document that we adhere to, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I think it's a well-worded document, and it basically defines what our church believes about the Bible. So let me just read this to you. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's a pretty good definition. There's different, there's different confessions and different creeds out there that give different, different denominations have their, have their different way of saying it. But what I like about our statement is it, it's, it's, a, it's, a divine, it's a divine depository of perfect knowledge. So it gives us instruction. The Bible's totally true, totally trustworthy. It is the supreme authority by which all conduct, all conduct is to be measured. So what does that mean? How we live is under the supreme rule of the Bible. And so one of the ways that, the, that, that our document defines the Bible is by giving it as doctrine instruction and that's an awesome definition of the bible it's doctrine it's instruction it's a rule book for, let me say the bible's not a rule book for living would you guys agree with disagree or disagree does the bible give us the way we should live yes is the bible not necessarily a science book but does the bible tell us about the way the world came into being okay is the bible a historical book 
okay, is the Bible a theological book? It's all of those. Okay, oftentimes in church, what we focus on is the Bible as doctrine, as theology, and that is, is a wonderful place to start. But as I've been thinking about the scriptures, I think there's another way to look at the Bible that I think the Bible tells us to look at the Bible. So we're going to try to combine both of these together as, as helping us have a biblical worldview. The doctrine, the theology, the instructions, but there's another way to look at it. The other way to look at it is one huge story of God's plan to redeem sinners through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you guys a question. Is the Bible one big story from Genesis to Revelation? Oftentimes we think of it as little bitty stories, right? You've got the story of Jonah. You've got the story of creation. You've got the story of, of Jesus and the parables. and You've got all these different stories. But is the Bible one big story? What is the one big story from Genesis to Revelation? What would you say is the big storyline of the Bible? If you could state it in a sentence, what would it be? I'll give it to you. Here's, the, here's, the way I, here's what I believe the storyline of the Bible is. God's glory in saving his people from their sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think that's what the storyline of the Bible is like. And so let me ask you a question. Does Genesis teach us about Jesus? Does Exodus, does, does the Old Testament teach us about Jesus? All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And I want us to look at the words that Jesus said that I think will help us understand having a biblical worldview. So what I'm doing, guys, is I'm laying a foundation that we need to have both working together. We need to have the theology and the doctrine and the teaching and the principles. And we also need to have the big story. And both of those come together, the principles and the story, to help us have a full biblical worldview. Okay, so, and that means the whole Bible. So let's look at this situation. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's appeared to Peter. He's appeared to a few of the other disciples. But these two, these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up. And does something very exciting. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? I like Jesus kind of playing with them a little bit. It's kind of, kind of an interesting story. He said to them, what, what things? What, what are you talking about? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. So they're basically telling Jesus, Jesus, he died on the cross and... We think he rose again. We don't know where he is. And Jesus is kind of walking along. 
okay, tell me the story. I want, I want to kind of know what you guys are talking about. And then look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what does Jesus do there in verse 27? Where does he begin? Beginning with Moses. Where does that begin us? Genesis. What did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the way down to Malachi. So what does Jesus do? He goes back to where? He starts at the beginning. Because that's the only scripture they had at this point. Was there a New Testament? He goes back to the Old Testament. And what word does he use there? Verse 27. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we don't have what Jesus taught them. It would have been so awesome to find out. But Jesus took them on a Bible lesson and said, okay, let's start in Genesis. Let me tell you what that reveals about me. Okay, then let's move to Exodus. And I don't know if Jesus went through every single book of the Bible, but it's amazing that Jesus starts back and says, the entire Bible points to me. It's all about me. And some people think Jesus shows up in Bethlehem in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Does Jesus show up in Bethlehem in the Bible? Sort of, physically, but does Jesus show up earlier? Is Jesus, in, like I said, is Jesus in Genesis? Is he in Exodus? Okay, let's keep going here. I've got something in my eye. Let's keep going down to verse, um, well, let's just keep going. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it, blessed and, broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us? the scriptures did not our hearts burn weren't we excited when he did what open to us the scriptures which would have been what genesis exited the old testament okay go down to verse 44 he shows up again to the disciples then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything written about me in the law of moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Okay, this time he gives what? You guys don't know what that is. Does anybody know what the Tanakh is? It's the Torah, the Kethim and the Nephim. Um, it's the law, the prophets. And the writings. This is how the Old Testament is divided in the Jewish Old Testament. You've got the law of Moses, you've got the prophets, and then oftentimes the writings were just given, like Psalms was the overview, but it didn't just include Psalms, but it included all of the poetic wisdom literature. So what Jesus is basically saying here is he, he took the entire Old Testament and did what? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and that it's about who? It's about him. So here's the question. Can you teach and preach and study about Jesus from the Old Testament? 
Does the story of Jesus start in Bethlehem or does it start in Genesis 1? In verse 27, Jesus interpreted to them the Scriptures. In verse 32, Jesus opened to them the Scriptures. In verse 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So let me ask you a question. How have we been reading the Bible? Do we see it simply as a guidebook for life with instructions for living, which is not bad in and of itself, or do we see it is that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you should not read the Bible as life instruction. How else are you going to understand how to live? But I think sometimes we as Christians, have you ever had anybody sit and talk to you and take you through what is the big storyline of the Bible? What are the repeated themes in the Bible? What are the repeated images in the Bible that you see from Genesis to Revelation that you maybe never knew were there, but God in His providence and sovereignty put them there so that you could see them? Has anybody ever taught you that? Maybe or maybe not. What I want us to do over the next few weeks is to look at how theology and story go together to give you a biblical worldview. Okay, so let's read John. Let's go to John chapter 5. And Jesus is going to make another statement about all of Scripture. This is going to help you guys. Kind of what I'm doing on Wednesday nights is almost a supplement to what I'm going to be doing on Sunday mornings. It's not going to go quite hand in hand, but we're going to be looking at Genesis for the next year on Sunday mornings. And some of the stuff that you're going to hear on Wednesday nights is going to reinforce what we talk about on Sunday mornings because a lot of times these themes, these issues that show up in the Old Testament are really, really important for us to understand Christ. So let's see what Jesus says about himself in John 5. So let's, let's go to John 5, 37. John 5, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His, he's talking to the Pharisees, by the way. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So what's Jesus saying here again? What bears witness about him? The scriptures. What scriptures is Jesus talking about there? Is the New Testament written yet? So he's saying the Old Testament, you can read the Old Testament and find me there. Pharisees, you're looking in the Old Testament for all these different rules and regulations and and thinking that somehow you can find eternal life by, by abiding by all these rules, but you don't realize that it testifies about me. Now go down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. And if you can't believe Moses, Pharisees, you should realize that the entire Old Testament is pointing towards me. So what we've got here is we've got two places in the Bible out of Jesus' own mouth where he says the entire Bible is about him. Not just the New Testament, but the entire Old Testament. So here's the foundation that I'm laying for us as we go forward. We need to have two things, and I'm going to put a name to both of those. Okay? We need to have 
Doctrinal instruction, we call that systematic theology. Doctrinal instruction, systematic theology. But we also need to understand the one big narrative that's called biblical theology. I'm introducing you guys to something that maybe you never have heard before, biblical theology. Biblical theology is just, it doesn't mean that it's a study of the Bible. Biblical theology is actually an official term that means you view the Bible as one unified story from Genesis to Revelation that preaches Jesus. Okay? So we need both of these. We need the doctrine. That's important, right? Doctrine, theology, principles. Um, what else can we put there? Rules. Um, but we also need the story. Because two-thirds of your Bible is what? Story. Two-thirds of your Bible tells a story. And sometimes you can read the story and think, what in the world does this have to do with anything? You read the story with the lens of, what does this tell me about Jesus and the gospel? Because if we're not careful, we can read these stories as morality tales of things that we're supposed to do. For example, how, have you, how many times have you heard a sermon, just be like David? If you could just be like David. David was courageous. He met Goliath there on the field, and David flung those five stones, and David toppled Goliath. So be like David and, and conquer your, your giants. You ever heard a message like that? Well, what's the problem with that? In principle, it's good, right? It sounds good. Okay, I can be like David, and I need to conquer my giants. Who's the star of the story when you do that? David, and by interpretation, me. Who was David? He was the anointed king. Who was Goliath? He was a Philistine pagan. When David killed Goliath, it wasn't just for him to strut his stuff. He was the king representing Yahweh who toppled a pagan enemy. It was a picture of Jesus conquering the enemy of Satan. And the hero of the story is Jesus. And so when we read those stories, we can often make ourselves the center of it and think, man, this whole Bible story is about me, how I can be a better person, how I can be like this Bible character. You're never going to be like these Bible characters. And sometimes you don't want to be like these Bible characters. <laughs> the only Bible character we're told to, in Hebrews chapter 11, the, 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 the Hebrews chapter 11 passage, he goes through who? He starts with Noah, and then he, there's, no, he starts with Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then he goes into the Israelites, then he goes into Rahab, and he, he gives you he tells you to, to to think about the faith of all these people. Does the writer of Hebrews ever once say, Look to these people? As a matter of fact, in chapter twelve, verse two, he says, Look to Jesus. Okay? So we learn from these stories in the Old Testament, but number one, these stories aren't where we're the star or the person's the star. These stories are Jesus is the star. And what do these tell us about, about Jesus? So we need to have both of these to help us have a biblical worldview. So let's talk about worldview. What is a biblical worldview? Now, Cindy teaches a whole class on worldview, and so I may not go as into, into much depth as she does in her class at CCU. But here's, here's basically a definition of worldview if you've, if you've never thought about it. 
It's the fundamental assumptions that you have about the most important issues in life. In other words, it's how you view the world. It's the grid through which you see reality, those big questions. And everybody has a worldview whether they know it or not. They may not be able to articulate their worldview. They may not be able to categorize their worldview. But everybody looks at the world in which they live and they have a set of beliefs of how the world works and how they, and how they operate and how they view reality. That's basically what a worldview is. Now, Michael Horton gives some helpful questions about how theology shapes our worldview. So let me just ask you a question. Some big questions that affect your worldview is, okay, your doctrine of man. What do you believe about people? Are we created in the image of God? Are we sinners fallen who need salvation? Are we inherently good? Are we inherently evil? Are we a product of our environment or do we have indwelling sin? What you believe about humans affects your worldview. What you believe about God, your doctrine of God. Is God sovereign? Is God creator? Does God have authority? Is it a goddess? Is it a power? Is it a spirit? Is it the God of the Bible? What's your view of God? Your doctrine of salvation. How does a person get saved? Is it salvation by works? Salvation by um, trying to be a good person? Is it going to church? Is it, is it, is it bowing to Mecca? Is it um, going to a temple and lighting a little candle? How, how, how is your view of salvation? And then also your doctrine of history in the future. History. How was the world created? How do we get where we are? Where's the world going? How's it all going to end? These are the big questions of life that maybe you don't think about or the person on the street doesn't think about, but these shape our worldview. Now, I want to give you five predominant non-Christian worldviews. There's probably more, but these are what I would call predominant worldviews that are out there in the world. There may be people you know that have these worldviews, relatives, coworkers. You may see this on television. You may come in contact with, but I want you to be aware of these worldviews because we are living in a culture. Let me just ask you a question. Do we live in a culture where the biblical worldview is predominant? No, No, we're not. A biblical worldview is no longer predominant. Even back in the 50 or 60 years ago, whether people were born-again Christians or truly regenerate, there was a Judeo-Christian worldview that shaped the life of America. But now, through this gradual, gradual or not, quick shift, the world of 50 years ago, that worldview has now been eclipsed by these worldviews. And as the world's gotten smaller through travel, through internet, through immigration, through all these things, people are being exposed to different worldviews at a faster pace simply by just the internet. I mean, our kids can be exposed to things that I never was exposed to growing up just because there's the internet. They have it on their phone. They have it on their tablet. It's, there's easy access. People are traveling. I grew up in Houston. One of the things about Houston, before I moved to Colorado, Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. They say Houston is actually more diverse than New York, Chicago, or L.A., and so when I was growing up, I believe this. I had a Korean friend, I had a black friend, I had a Hispanic friend, and I had a, a, a friend from India. I did not have a white friend when I was growing up. That was a good friend. I mean, I had white. But that was just the world that I grew up in. Was, and one was a Hindu, one was a Buddhist, one was a Catholic, and one was, and I had a Jewish, I had a Jewish friend. His parents were not Jewish. They were Jewish, but they were like into yoga and New Age mysticism. 
So when I was in fifth and sixth grade, those were my friends growing up. Nowadays, it's even more pronounced, even here in Sterling. Okay, just because we're in Sterling doesn't mean that these worldviews don't come here. So let's look at these five predominant worldviews. The first one is called naturalism. This is the idea that the universe is one-dimensional. Okay, there's no such thing as a soul or spirit. There's no such thing as a creator. Everything can be explained by science, physics, natural law. Therefore, man is a chance product of evolution. We just crawled up out of the goo and over millions of years evolved into what we are. So basically, the universe is random. We're a product of evolution. And as a result, there are no moral absolutes. Morals are what you individually may prefer. They may be what works good socially. But in a Darwinian system of evolution, the survival of the fittest works out the best. So whoever's in power, their morals will take sway. So let me give you some examples of naturalism. Let me put some labels to these. Atheism, Darwinism or or evolution, agnosticism and existentialism. This is the idea that there's no supernatural. I don't believe in God. And there's a rabid atheistic movement that's coming from a a lot of younger people. Um, There's a guy, I I have a friend, um, a really, really good close friend, who um, he was in my youth group and now he's an adult. He's like 28. He went to work at a camp in Mississippi for a summer and got to be really good friends with a young Southern Baptist, um, young, young, bright kid who was um, called to the ministry. He went on staff at Mark Dever's church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, the Nine Marks ministry, really strong Southern Baptist church. And he has now, this young, not my friend, but the guy, the friend of my friend, he has now denounced Christianity and started a blog and a website for ex-reformed ex, um, evangelical atheists. And he's talking about how he doesn't believe in God and everything was a sham. And he has a huge following on Facebook. And my friend was burdened. He's like, man, I saw him on Facebook and I tried to talk to him. I don't even know where to start. I mean, he was one of these, he was the poster child for, for like going in the ministry and being a pastor. And now he's an atheist. There is no God. So this naturalistic worldview says there's no supernatural. It's all science. It's all evolution. And if, it's, if we're just a product, let me just ask you the question. If we're just a product of evolution, what does that say about the dignity of humans? You pretty much can do whatever you want. Now, they wouldn't actually say that, but euthanasia, abortion, killing, any type of eugenics, any type of things where you deal with human life, Human life is expendable because it's their survival of the fittest. And also, think about this. In Nazi Germany, what had the highest moral? Nazi Germany imposed their morality because they were in power upon those that were weaker. So in this type of view, morality is basically based upon who's in power. This is what communism looks like. China and what Russia used to be. When you take God out of the equation and you bring in naturalism and science, and atheism, you get a culture that devalues human life and a culture that's totalitarian and people that are helpless and hopeless because they don't believe anything supernatural. This is the naturalistic worldview, okay? All right, let me talk about the second one. This is the exact opposite. This is pantheism. This is the exact opposite of natural. This is everything's the spirit world. 
There's a spiritual reality, but this spiritual reality is impersonable. It's unknowable. In other words, everything's part of God, and God is in everything and everyone. So you have God in you. I have God in me. That tree has God in him. All of us are connected to God. And so it's just like Avatar, the movie Avatar. If you ever saw that. Yeah, the forest is all with us. Um, So how you experience truth then is becoming one with whatever spirit you believe in. You attain a sense of nirvana. You connect with a god or a goddess. You connect with the power within. You want to transcend the physical world to be at one with what's out there, whatever it is. Whatever is out there. And so morality really becomes subjective. I was talking to our missionary when I was in India a few, a few weeks ago, and um, we were talking about eunuchs. There are a cast of Indian males that purposely castrate themselves to be male prostitutes. And I said, is homosexual male prostitution big in India? And he's like, they don't care. I mean, it's, they don't do it. He says, anything goes of there. Now, they're not, culturally, it's still man and wife because you have to propagate your family and, and look good in the society, but you can do whatever you want on the side because there is no absolute morality. It's whatever you feel like doing because it's all a hodgepodge of getting in touch with the eternal, whatever that is the spiritual oneness with the universe, within yourself. So what are some examples of this? Hinduism. There's a millions and millions and millions of gods. You may not know who these gods are, but you want to make sure that you become one with these gods. So you, you go to all these different things to try to, to get to these gods. Buddhism, Taoism, New Age. It's the, it's the whole reincarnation or trying to get in touch with the spiritual But usually that spiritual is a multiplicity of gods. It could be yourself. There's no one true God. It's whatever that thing is for you. Okay? Pantheism. All right, let's look at another one. I call this polytheistic animism. Okay, let me explain what polytheistic animism is. You guys know what polytheism is, right? Many different gods. Animism does not mean animals. Animism means the worship of ancestors. So here's what polytheistic animism is. We don't see this a lot in America, but you see this um, in other places in the world, especially among tribal people. Basically, the world is populated by spirit beings. And these spirit beings govern what happens. You've got gods and you've got demons. They're the real force behind natural events. And people usually live in fear of these gods. So you live in fear of how, and you're, you're worried that your ancestor, your aunt and uncle died and they may come back and haunt you and make life miserable for you. So you're always in fear of these gods and demons. So you're going to do whatever you can to get them off your back. And you're always living in fear. And how you know truth is you go to the witch doctor or you go to the shaman who somehow is going to get them rid, rid, of, you, rid of those for you. This is what we saw in India in the tribal areas. I mean, they would go to witch doctors and places to try. They combined Hinduism with animism, and they lived in fear. They live in fear of, are they going to make some God unhappy? And so the way, like if they're sick, there must, if they're sick or they're, or they're having health problems, there must be some ancestor that they offended in the past and has come back to haunt them. So they'll go to the witch doctor to try to do an incantation to get, to get and they may sacrifice a chicken or something to, and pour blood and stuff and do a little ritual to try to get the ancestor off their back. And usually morality is based upon what's taboo in that tribe. And so it may, it may change from tribe to tribe. Now, we don't see this a lot in America. This is in more, um, I would say, primitive parts in the world. A lot of African religions, 
a lot of religions in tribal areas in India, China, other parts of Asia, South America. This is more the, the tribal, I guess, non-Westernized people have this polytheistic animism. They live in fear of these spirit beings. Okay? Let me give you another one. This is what I call postmodernism or relativism. Reality is not absolute, so you can never say there's absolute truth. You can't say truth can be known. What you would say is we understand reality through community. We understand reality. So, for example, it would be like this. If we get together as a community, we can wrestle with what truth is. And whatever we come up with as our morality, that's our morality. But if there's a room next to us and that group of people come up with a different morality, it's okay for them, it's okay for us. What depends on is how we interact together as a group. We can't know truth. We can discover it together, but we can't be dogmatic enough to say that we've ever come to the truth. That's what postmodern relativism. And so moral values are not absolute. There's no absolute truth. And tolerance is the one absolute, okay? Tolerance is the one absolute. There's no absolute truth, but we've got to be tolerant of everybody. And so freedom of expression, inclusivism, the refusal to claim to have the answers, those are the absolutes. We don't believe in absolutes, but the one absolute thing we'll say is that we've got to be tolerant and we can't know truth, but we'll be absolute about that, even though there's no absolutes. Does that make sense? I don't have examples of this because this is kind of the culture we live in. I would say this is American ethos, the American ethos. You don't get it? Why they believe that or like why people believe that or the, or the definition of that? What part of it do, what part do I need to, to maybe bring more clarity maybe? They, they would say that, they would say there's probably truth out there but we really can't know it. We can't, we can't be arrogant enough to say that we have truth. So, for example, an evangelical Christian, what will we say? We believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus is the only way. They will look at us and say, that's very arrogant because you don't know that. You don't know that, you don't know that for sure. And how dare you say that you have the truth and somebody else doesn't? You're being intolerant by saying that you have the truth because really we can't know truth. And you end up not being able to stand up for anything Yeah, you can you, yeah. So you have feminism that says it's all about women and we should, you know, stand up for women and women need to have all, <coughs> they look at China and say, well, for their culture, it's okay that they kill yeah. all their female yeah. babies. Yeah, it's culture, it's, it's moral, it's, it's relativism in the sense that your values are, your values change depending on where you are. There's no absolute standard of morality that transcends culture. It's true in different pockets of wherever you live. Okay? John, yes, ma'am. seen some pictures of her on Facebook that were very inappropriate, so I called her to talk to her about it because mm-hmm. you know, here we've been in Bible study talking about living in a way that honors God, and then I see these pictures, and I will never forget her response. She goes, well, you don't understand. When I'm at Cowboy Up, I'm a Christian, but when I'm at the place, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I put on the Christian mask yeah. when I'm around Christians, yeah. but I take it off yeah. when I'm around another group she of people. I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. So that's, that's moral relativism. I will, I will behave the way I need to behave when I'm around Christians. 
But when I step out, yeah, whatever group you're in, you, you adapt like a chameleon to whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very, very good. All right, let me give you um, the last one that's, that, that's the, the non-Christian worldview. This is non-Christian theism. Okay, when I say theism, I mean one God. Okay, so non-Christian theism, there is one God. This one God created the world. He created people. He is known through his sacred writings. Now, you probably know these two examples, Islam and Judaism. Islam believes in one God, right? They don't believe in multiple gods. They believe in Allah. They believe Allah created people, and they obey the Quran, and they believe in one God. Okay, this is non-Christian. Judaism is the same way. Do they believe in one God? Yes, they believe, they believe the Old Testament, right? They, they, they read the same Bible we do. They just don't believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the way that they don't believe in Jesus. And so non-Christian theism. So let's talk about a biblical worldview. There's, there's many different ways I could have gone to give you a biblical worldview, but I felt like one of the best ways to do this is historically. In the 1500s, when the Protestant reformers were combating the, um, the Roman Catholic heresies and the different views, what emerged out of the Protestant Reformation were what we call the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. So we know the word solo, alone. So the solas mean alone. And so there are five solas that emerged from the Protestant Reformation that have basically defined, regardless of denomination really, for the past 500 years, these five solas have defined who we are as evangelical conservative Christians. So I thought the best way to maybe do this is let's, let's kind of narrow our world, biblical worldview through the five solas. So what are these five solas? Here's the first one. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. So a biblical worldview holds that the inspired and errant Bible alone is the sole authority for faith and practice. So we're starting from the assumption that if you're to have a biblical worldview, you believe the authority and inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible. It is your supreme standard. It's it alone. And when we say Scripture alone, we mean there's no, other, there's no other thing on par with Scripture. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they said tradition in the church is on par with Scripture. And Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli said, no, no, Scripture stands alone. Now, the church and tradition may inform and help but it's not on an equal par with Scripture. So we're saying a biblical worldview, first and foremost, says Scripture alone. The authority, inerrancy, inspiration of Scripture determines our belief system and how we live. Okay? Number two, God's glory alone. God exists as one God in essence, but three in persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. We, a, a biblical worldview is Trinitarian. It believes that there is one God who exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This God created the universe for His glory, and He alone sovereignly governs everything in absolute power. So a biblical worldview says the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created the universe for His glory. He rules and He reigns in absolute splendor and majesty over all creation. And that He created people in His own image. And those people, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and that every human being born since is born into sin and that we need redemption, which leads us to the third sola, Christ alone. A biblical worldview says that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I'm hearing more and more people saying Jesus is a good way. Jesus is the best way. 
Jesus will help you along the way. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Now, when you say Jesus is the best way, what does that mean? There may be some other ways. They're just not quite as good. Or Jesus is a way among many ways. No, a biblical worldview says we are going to stand on the truth that Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. Okay? Grace alone. Humans are spiritually dead because of sin. We're in bondage to sin. We cannot save ourselves. We desperately need the sovereign grace of God to rescue us from our sins. A biblical worldview says we're fallen. We're fallen and we can't get up. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn our salvation. We can't somehow be good enough. It has to be strictly grace upon grace that God gives us as a free gift to rescue us from our depths of sin through the salvation of Jesus Christ, which leads us to the fifth one, faith alone. Salvation is not something that we can earn in our own merit, but comes as a gift through faith. It's the whole idea that when we place our faith in Jesus, um, our sin is placed to Christ and His righteousness is placed to us so that we are viewed as, as accepted by God the Father. So let's just recap a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview says there is one God who is the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This one supreme, powerful God created the universe for His glory, created man and women in His image. They rebelled against Him in the garden and fell and are thus sinful we're all sinful so we're born in this world under god's wrath we need rescuing we need salvation jesus christ is the only way of salvation he comes and he saves us through his death burial and resurrection it's through faith alone grace alone christ alone and the way we understand all this is through the scripture alone is the supreme standard of our belief and we believe in a literal hell we believe in a literal heaven and we believe that jesus is going to bring it all to an end Mark Driscoll posted something interesting today and I posted on Facebook. I can't remember what he said. It's something like, here's the storyline of Jesus. I'm God, you're a sinner. Repent and come to me or you're going to hell. <laughs> it was basically like short and sweet. <laughs> it was like, okay, that's pretty much, that's to the point. So what I'm trying to argue for, guys, is this. In order for you to have a biblical worldview, the church has done a very good job, of the, I think, of the theology part. And, 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 and we want to focus on that. We're going to focus on that. But I think coming into that, we need to have the story part. That's where the church hasn't quite understood how it's a sovereignty of God thing. God in his sovereignty has put the Bible together in a way that shows the repeated themes of the storyline all the way through. And sometimes we just don't see it. And when we see it, it will help us to understand how to have this biblical worldview. Okay, so what I want us to do is... I want, us to, I want to give you a big, huge quote from D.A. Carson because he wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And in America, the predominant worldview, I think, you may argue with this, in America is probably postmodernism, relativism, where our culture has a very different worldview in regards to truth and how they promote tolerance. What do you think people are claiming in today's world? Tolerance? Everything goes. Don't tell me how to live. What's good for you is good for you, but don't impose that on me. And the moment that person says don't impose something on me, what are they doing? They're imposing that you don't impose that on them. You're being, so don't impose that on me. Do you believe in tolerance? Oh, yes, I, I'm very tolerant. Well, no, you're not. You're intolerant. Don't tell me I'm intolerant. Yeah, you're intolerant. You just imposed upon me that I can't be imposing it on you. 
So you, the very thing that you're arguing against, you're becoming. There's, in the past, and what D.A. Carson argues in his book is that 30, 40 years ago, there was a tolerance that was a good type of tolerance, but it shifted. So let me read to you. This is a long quote, but I think it's an excellent quote. Let me read to you. I'll read it to you slowly what he said in the introduction to the intolerance of tolerance. And D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar. He's, he's, he's the, the founder of the Gospel Coalition. He's, a, he's one of the smartest men alive right now. He uses some big words that I don't even understand. But I don't think he uses any big words in this, so maybe. Here's what he says. Under the older view of tolerance, and what he's talking about is, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you go on a college campus and you, you'd have debates in the public square, the older view. Under the older view of tolerance, a person might be judged tolerant if, while holding strong views, he or she insisted that others had the right to dissent from those views and argue their own cases. And he quotes Voltaire and says, Voltaire said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to death your right to say it. I think it's a good thing. I may not agree with what you say at all, but I'm going to defend your right to say it. That's what America is based upon, right? I may think you're an idiot, but you have the right to say it because we're in America. And I will defend your right to say it as idiotic as it is. Okay? That was the old tolerance. The old tolerance said, yeah, we'll tolerate what each other says as idiotic as it is because we believe that everybody has the right to express an opinion. And so he says this. This older view of tolerance makes three assumptions. Number one, there is objective truth out there, and it is our duty to pursue that truth. Number two, the various parties in a dispute think that they know what the truth is, even though they may disagree sharply, each party thinking the other is wrong. Number three, nevertheless, they hold that the best chance of uncovering the truth of the matter or the best chance of persuading most people with, re with reason and not with coercion is by the unhindered exchange of ideas, no matter how wrong-headed some of those seem. In the older view of tolerance, it was the unhindered exchange of ideas. In other words, you can have five people come together and say, this is what I believe. Person two, this is what I believe. Person number three, this is what I believe. And we'd all listen to each other and say, let's listen to each other and hear what we have to say. I may think you're an idiot and totally wrong, but I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And you're not going to tell me I can't speak. You're going to allow me to speak and share my opinion. So in the older view of a tol tolerance, all the opinions were tolerated, even though they disagreed. Okay? Here's what he says happens now. He says, this third assumption demands that all sides insist that their opponents must not be silenced or crushed. What's happening now is people are being silenced and crushed. Some opinions aren't allowed to be expressed, regardless of how stupid people may think they are. They're being told, no, you can't even say that. In the past, they were saying, you're an idiot for saying that, but I'm going to let you say it. Now they're saying, we're not going to let you even say that. Okay? Here's what he says. The sad reality is that this new contemporary tolerance is intrinsically intolerant. It is blind to its own shortcomings because it erroneously thinks it holds the moral high ground. We move from allowing the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. We leap from permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all beliefs and claims are equally valid. Thus we slide from the old tolerance to the new. The fact remains that any sort of exclusive truth claim is widely viewed as a sign of gross intolerance. So what he's saying here is that in the past, an evangelical Christian could stand up and say, Jesus is the only way and we believe the Bible. And another person would say, you're an absolute idiotic for saying that, but because we're in America, I will defend your right to say that. 
I will allow you to say that because we want a free exchange of ideas and the best way to discover truth is to hell out all the ideas to, to compete in the marketplace and the truth wins out. Nowadays, what's happening is if an evangelical Christian stands up and says, Jesus is the only way and I believe the Bible, they're saying you don't even have the right to say that because it's intolerant of the other views. So the one view that's intolerant is Christianity. We can talk about any other viewpoint, but the moment you start talking about Jesus, it becomes intolerant. And he's saying this is the epitome of intolerance. Do you guys see that shift? Okay. Yeah, it's not. I mean, any any issue that you want to, any issue that you want to talk about in a public in a public square, as long as this is still America, and as long as we still operate under the Constitution, which I think we do, hopefully, we should have the ability to have the free expression of ideas and let the best ideas win out in the marketplace. But what our culture is solely doing is saying we're going to limit who says what, and if you begin to say certain things, you will be labeled as hate speech and not allowed to speak. Because what you're saying is offensive. In the past, they would say, you know what? You're, what you're saying is hate speech, but we're going to give you the right to say it because it's a free country. And whoever's in power is ultimately going to determine who gets to say what. It's kind of scary, right? Because who's in power right now? Uh, that's as far as I'm going to go. It's, not com- it's coming quickly. It's coming quickly. Now, Yeah, I read that today. No, they shut down their business because they did. Well, guys, here's what I want to do. I'm treading on different. Go ahead. Sorry, who's the, what's the name of the person again? His name's D.A. Carson, Don Carson. The D.A., like Don Carson. He goes by D.A., D, period, A, period. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread on something here, but I think it's important because I want to make this local. This is not something that's happening in New York. It's not something happening in L.A. It's not something happening way out there. It's happening here in Sterling. Now, there's a pastor in town. I will not mention her name. Downtown. Who has written some newspaper articles in the Sentinel based upon a sermon series or a book by a guy named Martin Thielen. And Martin Thielen's book is What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian? Now, I went to Amazon.com to look at this book. She did a whole sermon series on this book in her church, and she's writing articles. She's written three so far in the Sentinel. You can go back and read them. I went to Amazon, and I'm not going to buy the book and read it, but I, I got enough from Amazon to know. <laughs> so let me give you the description of the book from Amazon, okay? Here's the quote, Amazon's description. Many people in the 21st century hunger for an expression of Christian faith that is different from the judgmental and narrow-minded caricatures they see on television or in the news. With an accessible style that's grounded in solid biblical scholarship, Thielen shows how Christians don't need to believe that sinners will be left behind to burn in hell or that it's a heresy to believe in evolution. And while we must always take the Bible seriously, we don't always have to take it literally. At the same time, Christians do need to believe in Jesus, his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection, and his vision for the world. Thielen articulates centrist mainline Christianity in a way that's fresh and easy to understand and offers authentic Christian insights that speak to our deepest needs. Now, I went to the table of contents and looked at each chapter. And here's the first set of chapters, things that you don't need to believe in order to be a Christian, okay? The sovereignty of God over natural disasters, cancer, and other tragedies. Don't have to believe in that. Be a Christian. Number two, you can believe in any view of evolution. Don't take the Bible literally when it talks about creation. Number three, the issue of male headship in the home and the church. 
basically, um, women, you don't need to submit to your husbands, and basically, um, let's just be feministic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here it even gets. It even gets. The other thing is, he says the, yeah, the idea of a final judgment and resurrection where non-believers will go to hell. Don't need to believe in hell. It's it's you know to be a Christian, you don't need to really believe that non-Christians go to hell. And then this is what he said: We really can't say who will make it to heaven or hell. That's in God's hand. We shouldn't worry about evangelizing Jews or other world religions. In this chapter, he actually states that be, that Jesus being the only way of salvation is debatable. He says we shouldn't take the Bible literally. And last one, homosexual marriage is okay. So those, you can be a Christian and not have, and, and basically, and so anyway, here's what she wrote in the article, okay? She wrote this. I quote her from the South Platte Sentinel on 8, 2013. Um, well, I don't know what the actual, it's a few weeks <coughs> She said, instead of seeing Christians as people who emulate the love of Jesus, instead of seeing churches as communities that reflect the grace and compassion of Christ, that concerns themselves with feeding and clothing and loving as Christ taught, people see the church as a gathering of fearful, angry people whose primary concern is purity, of doc- purity or doctrine, things that Jesus had no interest in at all. Did Jesus have interest in purity? Did Jesus have interest in doctrine? She quotes and says Jesus didn't care about those things. So what does that tell our teenagers about purity? Go live however you want because Jesus doesn't really care about it. Doctrine, believe whatever you want because Jesus is not, her whole argument is Jesus is not about doctrine or how you live. It's all about just how we love one another. Let's just love. Okay? I'll go on to read some more of what she wrote. She wrote, The Bible just isn't all that clear on a lot of practical issues that society faces today. If it were, then all Christians would belong to the same political party, and we quickly find solutions to the world's ills. Whether it's how we interpret the right to bear arms or the freedom to marry, people of good faith disagree. The Bible isn't entirely clear. This one thing is clear, and this one thing we know. The most important thing in our practice of faith is to love God and love people. Many churches today either need some help with marketing or just not getting it right. Because when people say they think the main function of the church is to keep people out, to condemn sin, and to rid society of impurity, or to maintain some kind of standard other than love, we're just not doing what Jesus plainly says is most important. See how slippery? We don't want to be condemning. We don't want to leave people out. But she says, when the church condemns sin and tries to rid society of impurity and maintain some kind of standard other than love, we're not doing what Jesus called us to do. Are we as a church concerned with purity? Are we concerned with condemning sin? Are we concerned with some other standard other than love? Maybe God's holiness. Well, and I won't even say that. I would say, I mean, yes, I, would, I agree with that, but I, mean, I would say when you say you're concerned with love, then you better define love. Yeah. Because perfect love is the cross. Yeah. Where God's wrath and God's... Yeah. And I'm just going to say one other thing about this that was kind of shocking to me today. If you saw the Sentinel today, you know, where they have the weddings, pictures of the different people getting married, they had in the paper today two lesbians that are, that are going to get, have a civil union at this church where she's going to do the marriage ceremony. It's in the Sentinel today. It's down the street. No, it's not legal. A civil union. She's basically going to, they're not legally married. She's going to perform a wedding ceremony in, in a, yeah. So that's enough on that. What I, the reason, guys, the reason I brought this in is because I don't want you to see this as something that's non-Christian and out there. This is people that claim to be Christians that live right here. 
And it's going to affect your children and your grandchildren in the air that we breathe. And so we need to be as a church starting to prepare for things like this. How do we do it with love? How do we stand our ground? How do we do it in a way that's biblical? How do we have a biblical worldview? So here's the, the question. How do we have a biblical worldview in this contemporary world? That's where we're going over the next few months, well, few weeks together, as long as it takes us, I guess. Because this is going to affect the way you live your life. It's going to affect how you interact as a church. How does what you believe affect the way you give counsel? What if somebody comes to you and asks a question about a life issue? How do you counsel them? How do you give them advice? How do you, how do you instruct them or encourage them? How does this affect the way we do evangelism and missions? Do we tell people that they're okay? Her article in today's paper, I'll go back and read it, was that basically everybody's okay and everybody's God's children. We just need to affirm people that they're already okay. How does this affect the way we do social justice ministries as far as caring for the poor? I mean, we do need to care for the poor. We need to do social justice. We do need to do things like that. How, how does the biblical worldview impact that? How does this affect the way we relate to our government? How do we engage in politics? There's a, there's a lot of different things that are at play here. And so my answer again, and I'm going to try to weave these two together, is that we need to have a thoroughgoing biblical worldview that combines the two ways of reading the Bible. We need to have a solid systematic theology. That is, we need to know our doctrine, the absolutes of Scripture, and where we stand on key issues. We need to know that. And we'll go, we'll go through that. But we also need to see the, be the biblical theology. That is, we need to know the overall storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and see how God has woven together one unified story of redemption. So as we move into the second part, what I want to do is I want to talk about the nature of Scripture. What does Scripture say about itself? If you take any class with me at Colorado Christian University or if you come to our new members class or if you're anything, I, I teach this all the time. And the reason I do is because I think it's foundational. So you may have heard this before or you may get it again, but this is, this is important to me. Here's number one. All Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore verbally inspired. Theopanoustos is the Greek word that we see there in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out, theopanoustos, breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Now, it says, what does it say? Does it say some Scripture? All. All. Now, the word Scripture there is the Greek word graphe, which means writing. So what you have written in its final form is breathed out by God. In other words, God breathed out exactly what he wanted the writers of the Bible to say down to the last period, comma, question mark, grammar, word choice. And so how did that happen? Well, let's look at 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes and works upon the heart and mind of the writer, whether that's Paul or Matthew or Isaiah or Moses, whoever's writing. The Holy Spirit works upon their heart and their mind to produce exactly what God wanted. It's the, inerr- it's the breathed out word of God. It's verbally inspired. Okay, here's the second thing that we need to know about the scriptures. All scripture is inerrant in the original manuscripts, and therefore the Bible is absolute truth without any mixture of error. What we're saying is that the Bible is free of errors. 
<clears throat> now, there are some people that say the Bible, when it comes to historical issues, the Bible has errors. When it comes to archaeological issues, the Bible has errors. But when it comes to salvation issues, the Bible doesn't have errors. So we're picking and choosing which parts of the Bible have errors and which part don't. What I'm saying is that the Bible has no errors whatsoever in the original manuscripts. Now, what we have now is a product of thousands of years of, of translation. And, I, and maybe we can do this in another class. I can show you the... I mean, we may do that in another, in another, another session here in the next couple of weeks is, is to show you how we got our Bible and how we can trust it. Would you guys want to learn how to do that and how the, how the different English translations came about to where we have it now? Because that's a question a lot of people ask is how can we trust that what we have is... We go through that in some of my classes in, in, in school as well. So we can do that. Um, so let's look at some scriptures here about inerrancy. Numbers twenty three nineteen, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not for- fulfill it? So God does not lie. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. And then I like Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Number three, all scripture is infallible and it will endure for all time. It will, it will never be destroyed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Most evangelicals will say, I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe it's without error, but they won't live under its authority. The Bible is authoritative, number four, and therefore is the supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. We live under the authority of the Bible. Sanctify them in the truth, John 17, 17. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus could have said, your word is true, and that would have been correct. Why did Jesus say, your word is truth? In the original language, it carries the connotation that your word is truth with a capital T. There's a lot of things that are true, right? I'm six foot two. That's true. You can measure me. I've got blue eyes. That's true. You, you guys can see, right? I got blonde hair. That's true, right? I'm married to Dawn. You can go look at my marriage certificate or see how I, you know, I hold her hand or kiss her or whatever. She's my wife. That's true. There's a lot of things that are true in the world, but Jesus is saying your word is the truth, the truth. And here's another thing that we talk about. Since Scripture is absolutely true, without any mixture of error, the meaning of biblical text is a fixed historical reality rooted in historical unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. Therefore, there's a fixed meaning that does not change. However, application of that meaning may change in various situations. What I'm saying is that what was true back in Leviticus is true today. Now, the application may be different, but there's a fixed meaning that transcends culture, that transcends time, that transcends history. Because you'll have a lot of people say, well, that was true back then, but we've evolved more. We've gotten more enlightened over the years. That was just their culture back then. They were archaic. They were barbaric. We've, we've, we've kind of gotten a little bit more progressive. So that was then. This is now. So that applied to them, but that doesn't apply to us now. Okay? Now, the Bible contains 66 separate books in one completed canon, which tells one unified story. Now, the Bible is not uniform, meaning there's all different types of genres and styles and books, and, but it is unified. The Bible tells one story. 
which is kind of amazing when you think about that. When the Bible is written by all these different authors over all these different periods of time in three different languages, it all tells the same story, which shows its validity. Okay? Now, biblical theology just simply refers to a certain way we read and approach the Bible. We read it from Genesis to Revelation as one unified story, one unfolding drama that culminates in Jesus. Now, there's different alternatives to reading the Bible that are, that are not necessarily wrong. And many times we may do this with not even knowing it. And so there are different ways that sometimes Christians read their Bibles. And I'm not saying these are wrong. Okay, don't get me, these aren't wrong, but if these are the only way that you read the Bible, sometimes you can be narrow in how you approach the Bible. So let me give you, you may, you may have been guilty of these, I've been guilty of this over the years, but if these are the only ways that you read the Bible, you're not having a holistic view of how you, you read the Bible. So what are some of these alternative ways? Well, the first is the goldmine approach. You read the Bible for some hidden truths that are unknown to others, but will give you some great insight and inspiration. The result, a confused reading. You ever met somebody like that or their greatest teacher? I've discovered something in the Bible that nobody else has come across. If you come to my teaching, I'll give you this new nugget of truth. And you're like reading the Bible to find that. I've got to find this great insight that's just going to change and rock my world. There's not a lot of new stuff in the Bible. It's pretty consistently the same thing over and over again. Okay? Sometimes we'll get confused. The other one is the hero approach. I kind of talked to that a little bit before when I was talking about David and Goliath. This is reading the Bible as a moral hall of fame that gives us one example after another of heroic spiritual giants to emulate. We see this in a lot of children's Bibles. Just be like Daniel, be like David, be like Joshua, be like this, be like this Bible character and, 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 and look at their moral life and, and, and try to emulate them and be like them. What it ends up happening is the sparing reading. I can never match up to these heroes of the faith. And so if only you read the Bible as looking at character studies, which is good, but if that's all you do, sometimes you can get despairing and say, I'm never going to be an Abraham. I'm never going to be a Moses. I'm never going to be the Proverbs woman in Proverbs 31. I'm never going to be Ruth. I'm never going to be like these people. And the answer is, no, you're never going to be like those people. Jesus is the only perfect one. And when you're connected to him, you're accepted. The rules approach. Some people like to read the Bible for the rules. Read the Bible for commands to obey to subtly reinforce a sense of personal superiority or to be judgmental. I just want to find rules so that I can keep my kids in control. You know, it's like I'm simply reading the Bible to find the rules so either I can follow them and feel better about myself or I can bang it over the head of somebody else that's not following the rules. And this becomes a pharisaical reading if that's the only way you, you read the Bible. The artifact approach. Reading the Bible as an ancient document and digging into little-known facts and geographical and archaeological trivia so that you can win Bible trivial pursuits. I had a Sunday school teacher like that at our former church that was like, his, his Sunday school class was the boring reading. It was like he got his like archaeological things out and he was digging into, you know, finding out the caves of Moab. And, you know, it was like, yeah, there's a time and place for getting into the intricacies. But most people aren't there. Most people just aren't there, okay? Then there's the guidebook approach. And this is, I think, where a lot of people read the Bible. Reading the Bible is a roadmap to tell me where to work, who to marry, what shampoo to use. <laughs> Treats the Bible like a magic book or reading tea leaves to find very specific answers to my particular life issues. The result, anxious reading. I had a person that I was counseling with a couple weeks ago that had the choice between two occupations. And um, I told him the Bible doesn't answer which one you should take. 
As much as you'd like for the Bible to give you the, this blinding light to say, this is the one you take, sometimes, and this is what I told him, if it's not immoral, unethical, or illegal, then that means you can probably take both of them. And, if and you need to have some wisdom, you know, compare the salaries and whatever. But sometimes God gives us a brain and we just make the decision based upon wisdom. And if we make a mistake and make the wrong one, God and his providence will guide us back and you haven't lost out on life. But some people, the anxious reading, I've got to find, you know, who am I supposed to marry? Have you ever told you a story about Judas? A guy was in a hotel room, and he was depressed, and he was, he was suicidal, and, and he found the Gideon's Bible, and he, he's like, I gotta, I, I'm, I, the first scripture I turn to is what God's going to tell me. So he opened the Bible, and it, Judas hanged himself. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. So he turns it over, and he's like, what you're about to do, do it quickly. <laughs> That's not right. You know? And so he was like licking his finger and trying to find the, the guidebook. So we, we do the guidebook approach. Um, sometimes we do the doctrine approach, and sometimes, you know, I can be guilty of this. You, you read the Bible simply to dig out deep theological truths so that you can have ammunition for your next debate with a friend. The result, sometimes it becomes a cold reading. I just got to get my theological ammunition so I go in guns ablaze and say, this is what I believe, which is we need to know what we believe. Now, none of these are necessarily wrong, okay? None of these are wrong in and of themselves, but if that's the only way you read the Bible, then you're missing out on the grand story of what the Bible's like. And I think as evangelicals, let me just ask you a question. Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian publishing, do you think those are more pronounced or the storylines more pronounced or more emphasized? What do you think is more emphasized just in the television shows, the books, the, the um, teachings that you see on radio? What do you think is emphasized more? Reading the Bible that way or reading the Bible as one big story? I think it's the other way. And there's nothing nothing necessarily bad about that. I just think that we as as a church have a deficiency in looking at the big story. So what I'm going to attempt to do is to help us understand the big story. Because I think you guys know your theology. I think you guys know the rules. I think you guys know the doctrines. So I'm going to introduce you to another term. This term is called metanarrative. Metanarrative. What a metanarrative is, is this word means one huge overarching story that explains how the universe operates and provides us with a worldview. Metanarrative means there's one huge true story that encompasses all other stories and it's absolute truth and this is the way the world works. And what I'm saying is Genesis to Revelation is that one big story. Okay? And it's most basic level, here's what the Bible's about. Here's what the storyline of the Bible is. If you want to know the storyline of the Bible, it's this. It's a story of a king, a kingdom, and the king's relationship with his subjects through covenants, redemption, and judgment. That's what the story, from Genesis to Revelation, you can trace. There's a king. He's got a kingdom. He's got people in his kingdom. And he relates to those people through covenants, through redemption, and through judgment. So we're going to unpack what does it mean that there's a king of the kingdom. And what are covenants? And what is redemption? And what is judgment? Look at Acts 1.3. Let's turn to Acts real quick. We may not have time to finish. I thought we would finish early. but we're... Acts 1.3. After Jesus rose from the grave and before he went back up into heaven, he spent some time teaching his disciples. Now, you remember back in Luke, what did Jesus say? The law, the prophets, the writings, all the Old Testament point towards me. And John, he said, you search the scriptures, and it focuses on me. 
Now let's look and see what he says here in Acts 1.3. Acts 1.3, To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. He spoke about the kingdom of God. So one of the things, the major thing that Jesus taught them, we could probably say in those 40 days, when he pulled the disciples aside and started teaching them about the scriptures, he taught them about what? The kingdom of God. So that's a huge theme in the Bible, the kingdom of God. Now, what first came out of Jesus' mouth? Mark 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, <coughs> proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth are repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. So do you think the kingdom of God is an important theme in the Bible? The kingdom of God. It's all throughout the Bible. So here's three things about the kingdom of God that we see from the very first pages of Scripture. And we'll look at more in detail on this on, on Sunday mornings as well. Here's the kingdom of God. We see this from the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You have God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Let's just talk about Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You have God's people. Who are they? Adam and Eve. Are they in God's place? They're in a garden. Are they under God's rule and blessing? Yes. What happens after chapter 3? It all goes south. They're still God's people, but they're not in God's place, and they're not really under God's rule and blessing. So all throughout the Bible, God is... That's thunder. Um, how, does, how does the Bible begin? God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. How does the Bible end? God's people in God's place. Where's the place? The new heavens and the new earth. And there's the tree of life in the new heaven and new earth. And there's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden under His rule and His blessing. So the Bible has a beginning, middle, beginning. You ever thought about that? And so the storyline of the Bible is how are God's people going to live under God's rule and God's blessing in God's place? And you have different expressions of this throughout the Old Testament. In the covenant with Noah, in the covenant with Abraham, in the covenant at Mount Sinai with the Israelites in Exodus, in the covenant with David, in the new covenant with Jesus. Vaughn Roberts has written a great, big, a great book, and I'm going to go over this briefly. It's called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible, and he shows us how the kingdom of God comes in seven stages. So if you were to take the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if we take this motif of the kingdom of God, God's people, God's place under God's rule and blessing, he says there's seven major movements. Okay? The, the first five are in the Old Testament. The first one is the pattern of the kingdom. And I just talked about what the pattern was. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the world created how God wanted it to be. God's people, Adam and Eve, live in God's place, Eden under his rule and blessing as they submit to his word. It's the pattern of the kingdom. That doesn't last very long, does it? Number two, you have the perished kingdom. After the fall, we see the kingdom die as they are no longer under his, no longer his people, living in his place under his rule and blessing, but instead are now spiritually dead and live in a cursed world. So the kingdom has died. 
And from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, you see that unfold. We'll see that on Sunday mornings. What happens after that? Cain kills Abel. Then you have Lamech. Then you have Noah and the whole world being destroyed. Then you have the Tower of Babel. Genesis 1 through 11 shows creation, decreation, and then Babel, chaos. And what does God do in Genesis 12? He comes with a new creation, Abraham, to create a new people. And that's what we find in the promised kingdom. The promised kingdom, in sovereign grace, God chooses Abraham, makes an unconditional promise with him to reestablish the kingdom. Abraham and his seed will be God's people living in God's place. This, this is the promised land at that time under God's rule and blessing and will be a source of blessing to the entire world. So you got the promise. So you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then what happens at the end of Genesis? Are they in the land? No, they're slaves in Egypt. They were in Canaan, but under Joseph, they end up back in slavery in Egypt. The partial kingdom. In the Passover and Exodus, God redeems his people, calls them his own, gives them his law so they might live under his rule and blessing. God's blessing is marked by his manifest presence with them in the tabernacle. And then under Joshua, they enter the promised land. Under David and Solomon, we see Israel at its peak. It's God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing, but it was not complete. Okay? It was the partial kingdom. I mean, under David, they were all together, right? He was the king. They were in Jerusalem. They were God's people. But did it last very long? Was David a perfect king? No. Was Solomon a perfect king? Okay. Then what happened? The nation divided into two. This is kind of what we looked at in Amos a few weeks ago. The prophesied kingdom. After Solomon died, his son caused the fracturing of the nation to divide into civil war and form two kingdoms, the northern Israel, the southern Judah. Both kingdoms are taken over by Gentile enemies, and eventually the southern kingdom is forced into seven years of Babylonian exile. During this time, God raised up prophets to announce that the coming kingdom where God would again restore David to his throne. So God promises again, hey, there's coming a day where there's going to be a king, there's going to be a kingdom, there's going to be a people living under his blessing and rule as his people, but right now you're in exile. Okay? How does, the New Te- how does the Old Testament end? They're in exile. They come back. They repopulate Jerusalem, but and they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple. But is it, are they like obedient? No, there's, there's 400 years of silence until Jesus comes on the, pl- the present kingdom. What does Jesus announce? The kingdom of God is here, the present kingdom. Jesus comes in the fullness of time as the true King David. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom has now arrived. He inaugurated the kingdom by his life, death, and resurrection. So everything that was promised back in Genesis is now fulfilled in Jesus. Now, we're in this period. We're in the proclaimed kingdom. After his ascension in Pentecost, we as his people are now to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all creation until he comes, the king comes back. So we are God's people living under God's rule and God's place. Now, the place that he's placed us is right now is kind of in the world that we live. We're aliens and exiles and strangers. We're not in our home yet, but we're still God's people under God's rule and we're to proclaim God's kingdom, the gospel. And then what's going to happen at the end? You've got the perfected kingdom. And Revelation 21 through 22 describes the fully restored consummation of the kingdom. We see God's people, all Christians from all nations, in God's place, a new heaven, a new earth, under God's rule and God's blessing. So, the Bible starts (coughs) with a garden, with the tree of life, with perfect intimacy with God, and then it ends in the new heavens, a new earth, with the tree of life and perfect intimacy with God. God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. Does this story of the kingdom 
impact your worldview. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks together is to understand the king of the kingdom. How do God's people live in God's place under God's rule and blessing? How does systematic theology, the grand storyline biblical theology, come together to help us determine what our biblical worldview is so that we can do evangelism, we can do missions, we can counsel, we can give advice to Christians, we can do social justice, we can relate to our government, we can live in this world as salt and light the way God wants us to live. That's where we're going. Okay? And we got done in two minutes. So let me go ahead and pray for us. Next week we're going to talk about covenant. God, one of the themes in the Bible is covenant. God created a covenant with Adam, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David, a new covenant, and we're going to look at those covenants because that's how God relates to his people. The king relates to his people through covenant. And maybe you've never understood covenants before, but next week we're going to understand what are the covenants that God has entered into his people throughout the stages of of history. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the king who created Jesus, thank you. You are the king who rules and reigns and you're coming back. And, and Jesus, we want to be under your rule and blessing. We want to live as children of the king and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all creation until you come back. And Lord, we know we live in a world that does not want a king. We live in a world that does not want to hear about the gospel. But Lord, you've called us to be faithful, to stand up for truth and to do it anyway, regardless of the cost. So help us to have a biblical worldview and to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have and do it with gentleness and respect. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.